And I invite the rest of you to stand in honor of God's word. The scripture reading today is from Matthew 5, 3, 7, and 38 through 48. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it, that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the, his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, once again, we do not want to take your word lightly. We know that every word that you speak in your scriptures are words that we need to hear. And so we ask, uh, as you speak to us, uh, that you would empower us by your spirit to hear, not just in a way that occupies our minds, but in a way that reshapes us and renews us so that we might be more like Jesus. We pray that you help me to speak faithfully and clearly, that together we, your church, might be made mature and you might be honored. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me say right now at the very beginning that this, this is tough stuff that this passage brings us to. I don't know if I'm breaking some sort of preacher's rules by kind of saying that at the outset, but this, if we're just honest, this is not easy what Jesus is talking about in these verses. Because what he's talking about is how you and I are to respond to evil. And by saying respond to evil, I'm not just talking about some sort of abstract out there. I'm saying when evil is done to you. When someone close to you betrays your trust. When a co-worker stabs you in the back and undermines you. When you find yourself feeling like the, the world around you is unjust and you are experiencing the pain of its injustice. These are things, when we start seeing them, we know this hurts. So what do we do to respond to evil? Jesus begins to point us in the direction to the answer that with these first two beatitudes, these blesseds that we began with, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's inviting us to a humility that takes our attention off of ourselves, where we're not standing up for our rights. When he says, blessed are the merciful, he's calling us beyond that to, to love 
those who are not worthy of our love. But I think it all becomes increasingly clear when we get to these verses from 38 to 48 where he takes those ideas and makes them tangible, makes them frighteningly concrete. And what we see when we bring all of it together that Jesus says, when you experience evil done unto you, do not retaliate. Because the way of my kingdom, the way that we overcome evil, is through love. That is the overriding idea, the idea that underpins all of this, that you and I are called not to retaliate, but to overcome evil with love. Verse 38, Jesus begins by quoting. He says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And he's quoting actually the Old Testament. In three places in the law of Moses, that standard is given. It's a standard given by God specifically to provide judges and courts a standard for righteous punishment. It's a standard actually that was given to prevent retaliation from escalating. You know, if one person wronged another family, the natural thing in the ancient Near East was for that family to hit back and to hit even harder, and then there could be escalation and get into a blood feud. But here, God is saying, here is a standard. I want the courts to deal with this. And here's the simple way of dealing with it so that it is done at this point, no further retaliation or escalation. So it's a legal standard. But by the time of Jesus' day, as is even the case today, this verse was taken dramatically out of context. And it became this excuse for personal vengeance. You hit me, I will hit back. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Jesus says that is not at all the right way of viewing things. When you have wrong done unto you, you should not pursue retaliation. That's, that's what he's saying when he says, don't resist evil. You've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I tell you not to resist evil. Now, he's not just giving a blanket statement. We see every moment of Jesus' life, him resisting evil, whether it's resisting temptation or, or speaking out against the wrongs that he sees. What he's talking about in particular is do not oppose yourself to evil in the form of retaliation in the form of hitting back. He's saying, you've heard it said that if someone hits you, you can hit back, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, that is not the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom is not to retaliate. And in fact, as we'll see, more and more he moves us to saying the way of the kingdom is not just that, it is to overcome evil with love. And we see that through four illustrations that he gives in the following verses. Now, before I get there, I think it's important to just talk for a moment about a certain kind of speech which we sometimes call hyperbole or, or exaggeration. If I tell my kids, hey, I need you to clean the kitchen, and I want it so clean that I could perform surgery on the counters. Now, I wouldn't say that, but if I did, I think all of us would know that I wasn't literally asking for them to take out bleach and find a perfectly sterile environment. I'm using hyperbole. I'm using exaggeration to say, I really want this place clean. And we do that all the time. Coaches say, I want you to give 110%, even though we know that is impossible. You hear, you know, the, the drill sergeant, if I say jump, you say how high, although it's probably never actually going to happen. He's using exaggeration. We use exaggeration to kind of shock. It, it, it's more effective than just saying this really matters to me. It gets the imagination going, and it's a way of emphasizing this is really important. You should pursue this. 
And it's not just our day that does this. This was a common way of speaking in Jesus' day as well. And Jesus himself is using that here. If we take these four illustrations as kind of these these carefully given laws that we're supposed to take literally, you and I are going to find ourselves terribly confused. And actually, we can see the history of the church dealing with these verses, taking them literally is a history of confusion. But if we understand that he is using hyperbole to make a point, to shock us, and to realize that this is something that really causes us to have to move and do things differently, then we will be challenged and not just only confused. So let's go through these four illustrations. The first one, famously, is this one of turning the other cheek, where Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other as well. Now, I found it helpful when I was kind of studying these verses to realize that this image of slapping the right cheek is not so much one of of violence or pain, but one of insults. When he's mentioning the right cheek, that's implying that someone would take their right hand and slap with the back of his hand on the side of the cheek, because that's the way it would naturally go. That was, in that day, the single form, most offensive way of insulting another person. It was even considered worse than spitting on a person. In fact, you can actually take someone to court if they offended you in this fashion. But Jesus is saying that is not the way of you. If someone insults you, I mean, just think of our context. It's not going to be a slap in the face probably. But if, if someone in a conversation says something incredibly hurtful about you, maybe they've gossiped behind their, your back or maybe just right now, that, you know, right face to face, you have experienced something that causes you pain, your natural impulse is going to be to hit right back and Jesus says, do not follow that impulse. If someone insults you to your right cheek, turn your left cheek as well and endure the insults. Now, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the 20th century uh, theologian, said something that I think was really helpful for understanding what, what's kind of behind this. When we are insulted, when we are intact, we tend to think that the person attacking us is our enemy. But that's actually not the way it is. Our actual enemy is evil. Now, what does evil want in that situation? It's a strange way of putting it, but but stay with me for a moment. What does evil want in that situation? Evil wants more evil. Evil wants evil in return, escalation. You and I know what escalation is like, don't we? Uh, Just imagine this scenario. Maybe you'll be familiar to at least some of you. Maybe on some day, your spouse will say to you in the morning, you know, trash never got taken out, taken out yesterday. Now, that's not an evil thing to say, but you might be feeling, oh, uh-oh, I don't like this conversation where it's going. So you decide to hit back and say, I'm sorry, I just didn't have time when I had to both cook and clean after dinner, because, of course, if you cooked, you shouldn't have to clean. <laughs> and then your, your spouse responds, I'm sorry, I know you were busy putting the, free, the uh, pizza in the f- oven and then throwing away the paper plates after... <laughs> But I, and, and, I mean, you, so you, you know the conversation where this is going, right? I mean, you may well have been in a conversation like this. This is not a happily ever after kind of conversation. This is a conversation where there's escalation, where things get back and they get magnified. And an hour later, the stupid trash has made your night miserable. Now, the alternative is to endure the insult. See, what happened there is is evil fed on itself. You just gave evil what it wanted. 
But Bonhoeffer writes that when we turn the other cheek, evil does not find what it is seeking, namely resistance. And that is in that new evil, which will inflame it even more. Evil will become powerless when it finds no opposing object, no resistance, but instead is willingly endured and suffered. Evil meets an opponent for which it is not a match. Evil can't achieve its goal of creating more evil. It remains alone. I mean, just think in that moment where we initially experienced that, that insult, if we had just said, you're right, I messed up, I'm sorry, I should have taken the trash out, how different would that night have been? Now, that's a trivial illustration. We know that things are much harder, much more painful when we're talking about the kinds of insults we can endure, but that doesn't change the reality of the situation. We have a choice to either feed evil through retaliating or to endure it, to turn the other cheek so that evil remains alone, enduring through love. Now, I want to keep going to the next illustration, but let me just stop for a moment because there is an important clarification I think we need to say here, and that is we're saying that Jesus tells us not to return evil with retaliation. That's different from saying that when we experience evil, we should just simply accept it. And, and I point that out because in different situations, we can completely misunderstand the idea of turning the other cheek, and it can be a real problem. If you, for example, are in a marriage where there is abuse, the call to turn the other cheek is not a call for you to just take it. It is not retaliation to leave in a situation like that and to speak to others about it. That's actually the most loving thing that you can do in that situation. That's not what Jesus, Jesus is not just saying that we should accept evil in this moment. Well, let's move to the second illustration that Jesus provides here. In verse 40, Jesus tells us that if someone goes after you in court, so now this is a legal context, Rather than fighting that person, give more than what he's asking. Literally, it says, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, here's one of those reasons why I say it's clear that Jesus is using hyperbole. If we, if we took this literally, then, well, perhaps it's worth knowing that in the day of Jesus, people only had two items of clothing. They had a tunic and they had a cloak. At least if you were rather poor, that was what was true of you. So if people in Jesus' day took this literally, you would have a lot of nudity in the land. And, and people knew that. I mean, just like when we hear give 110%, none of us tries to figure out how we give 110%. So people hearing Jesus would know that he is using shock to make a point. And it's the same point, essentially, that he was saying with about turn the other cheek. When someone goes after you and you are wronged and you know you shouldn't be in court, your natural impulse is going to be to lawyer up and to do everything you can to take that person down because they've wronged you. But don't give in to that impulse. In fact, he takes it even further here in this illustration than the one before, doesn't he? Because he says, not only should you not seek to retaliate, when someone takes one thing, you offer them something else. In other words, you should seek the good of your enemy. You should seek to overcome evil through loving them. 
Uh, a couple of years ago, you might uh, remember how Chick-fil-A was this company that was very much in the news because it was controversial, because it was supporting certain charities that opposed same-sex marriage. And so there were a lot of protests against it. There were people trying to make legal maneuvers, keeping Chick-fil-A from opening in certain places. And, and lots of things were even said about the company that were, I think, untrue, ultimately. Now, what do you do in that situation if you are the, the CEO of that company? Do you try to strike back? Do you get things into court? Do you sue for libel? Well, well Dan Cathy, who was the president of Chick-fil-A, did something different. He, he made a phone call to a guy by the name of Shane Windmeyer, who was the director of Campus Pride, one of the main organizations opposing Chick-fil-A. And actually, Shane wrote an article in the Huffington Post a few months later about what took place. He writes, on August 10, 2012, in the heat of the controversy, I got a surprise call from Dan Cathy. He had gotten my cell phone number from a mutual business contact serving campus groups. I took the call with great caution. He was going to tear me apart, right? Give me a piece of his mind, turn his lawyers on me. The first call lasted over an hour, and the private conversation led to more calls the next week and the week after. Dan Cathy knew how to text, and he would reach out to me as new questions came to his mind. This was not going to be a typical turn of events. His questions and a series of deeper conversations ultimately led to a number of in-person meetings with Dan and representatives from Chick-fil-A. He had never before had such dialogue with any member of the LGBT community. It was awkward at times, but it was always genuine and kind. And he goes on to speak of how, as they sought to understand each other and listen to each other, they actually became friends. See, this is an example of rather than retaliating, overcoming evil with love. Perhaps you right now are experiencing something pretty hard in work. You have a colleague who has hurt you. Maybe they are taking credit for something you've done, or maybe they made a mess and you're the one who's having to take the fall for it. Or maybe one of your coworkers or your manager is just incompetent and you are having to do all of the work to kind of cover for them. Or maybe just someone has simply betrayed your trust. How are you going to respond in that moment? Are you going to try to bring about their downfall, to see them fail? Or are you going to seek to overcome evil with love and actually pursue their well-being and their flourishing? So that's the way of the kingdom that Jesus is calling us to. Well, we get to his third illustration in verse 41, which, which deals with, I guess you could say, an abuse of power. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile with them, go two miles. That's where we get that expression to go the extra mile from. And here's what's going on. In, in that day, the law was that any Roman soldier could take any person in the area and say, I need help, and have them carry stuff all the way up to a mile, but no further. That was the limit. Now, as you might imagine, this was not a terribly popular rule with the people of Israel who really didn't like to be under Roman rule anyway. The idea of just being conscripted at will was especially offensive to them. And so you have these, these uprisings, these, these plots of how to revolt, how to rebel against Rome, but Jesus is taking people in a very different direction. He says, when they tell you to do it, not only should you do it, 
but you actually, when you are done fulfilling your legal obligations, seek to give more, to go a second mile with them. Now, the implications for this today are, are interesting to me. We, I think many of us, might feel at times annoyed with the government. Sometimes things feel like they're incompetently run. There are, there are regulations, whether it's about health care or other rules, that we just think are not done well. We see taxes, and it seems like taxing is going to incompetent institutions. And, and we might have a point in some of our frustrations. But what do we do with that? Do we start taking our posture to society as we've paid our dues? Or do we say, yes, I will pay my taxes, and I will also seek to give myself to the community around me? Yes, we pay taxes to pay for our local schools, but do we also seek to serve them and seek their well-being? Yes, part of our taxes go to welfare, but do we also look at where there is need and seek to care for the needy? Now, when we're speaking about supporting government, sometimes even when it's unjust, there's, there's a tension that I think is, is brought into play. What about those situations where there is clear injustice? Are we just being told just to accept it? Well, again, I think it's helpful to bring the clarification before. Jesus is not saying accept evil when he's saying don't retaliate against it. In fact, you look at the life of Jesus, and again and again, he is taking a stand against unjust institutions. He is speaking the unpopular things. When, when people try to make Jesus into something, he does not let them do that. So the calling is not to just allow evil to be. But even still, Jesus never, whenever he is struck, he never retaliates. So we ask, what about institutions like the Jim Crow laws of the early 20th century? What's the right way of dealing with that? I don't know if anyone understood Jesus' teaching better than Martin Luther King, in this place at least, or at least no one exemplified it more. And so here's what he wrote about how we should respond to unjust institutions. He said, The ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral, begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie, nor establish the truth. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. So it goes. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying the very same thing we're seeing here. We overcome evil not through retaliation. We overcome evil with love. The fourth illustration that Jesus gives us is in verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And here is another place where it's clear that Jesus is using hyperbole. Otherwise, anyone who takes the train to the city would have to give an extra hour as they walk from the train station to their work for all the people asking for money. We would not want to listen to NPR because every couple of months our account would get smaller. We would not want to look at the mail because every request for money we would, would you know, wipe out our bank account. Jesus is not saying literally every single time anyone ever asks you for money, you should give it to them. But he's challenging us about the way that we look towards those who need our help. 
I mean, when you do walk through that, walk by that person who is asking for help, do you see them as a threat? Do you feel like you need to avoid them? Or do you see the need and want to help? Now, Augustine pointed out helpfully that Jesus doesn't say, give to them whatever they want. You think of how Peter and John, when they come to the beggar and the beggar asks for money, says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give to you. And, and he healed them. Now, that's not likely to be us. But even still, when we see need, do we turn our eyes away or do we feel a responsibility for it? That's one of the reasons we are participating in Haiti. It's not just because we're wanting to do something nice. It's because we have a responsibility as the people of God to see where there is need and to seek to help. That is our calling. So you put these four illustrations together, turn the other cheek. When you are sued, give even more. When you are commanded, go above and beyond what you're asked. When you see need and you're asked, give. It all points in the same direction. The direction of when wrong is being done to us and our impulse is to hit back, to do the opposite and actually to seek the good of the other. It is pointing us towards what Jesus says explicitly just a couple of verses later to love our enemies. Verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Just hear these words, love your enemies. Don't just tolerate, don't just avoid, don't just keep from doing something mean, but actually love. Desire the well-being of your enemies. Pray for them. You know, if you're looking for a really tangible application, let me ask you this. Think of the person who is the biggest difficulty for you to bear. Maybe it's someone at work who is making work almost intolerable. Maybe it is a family member or neighbor who is just always hurting you. Will you pray for them? And not pray for their destruction. Will you actually pray for their well-being? Because that's actually the beginning of how to love. We, we learn to love first oftentimes through our actions and only then through our emotions. If we pray for them, we begin the task of loving our enemies. Because here's the thing. To love our enemies, to overcome evil with love, may well be the single most defining thing that differentiates us from the world around us. It's important for us to love our families. It really is. And it's important for us to love each other. But that's a fairly natural thing for us to do, to love those who can love us back. Jesus says exactly that, doesn't he? When he says, if you love those who love you, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? That doesn't distinguish us from the rest of the world. But loving enemies... Loving those who hate you. Who does that? Well, God does. He's God's loved us. I mean, Romans says it clearly. While we were opposed to God, while we were still sinners, God loved you. 
And we know that when Jesus is saying these things, he is not saying these emptily. He is saying them as one who himself exemplifies them. He, he was struck on the cheek, and he remained silent. He experienced injustice in courts unlike any other. He was forced to walk the mile to the cross. And yet all of this he did willingly and even praying for those who were wronging him. And to all the beggars who asked him, to all the needy like you and me, Jesus would give and give, and he gave his very life. See, God loves enemies. Jesus, our Savior, knows more than anyone else what it means to overcome evil with love. And as we begin to do that, the family resemblance starts becoming apparent. That's what Jesus means when he says that if you love your enemies, you will be called sons of God. That is what makes us look like the God who loves us. If we overcome evil with love. Now, if you are really trying to think this through right now, if you even maybe have in your mind someone specific, most likely you are feeling helpless and saying, how can I do that? And that is the right question because the answer is, you and I on our own, we can't. But we're not on our own. If you trust in Christ, you are in Jesus. You are united with him. His death has broken the power of your selfishness and sin. And his resurrection has given you his Holy Spirit. The very spirit that enabled Jesus to walk to the cross willingly and lay down his life for us is the spirit who now empowers you and empowers me to lay down our lives for others. And as we seek to obey prayerfully, trustingly, dependently, we begin to see in ourselves that family resemblance. And we begin to learn what it means to overcome evil with love. Probably all of us know about how a little less than a year ago in Charleston, South Carolina, a shooter came into Mother Emanuel uh, Methodist Church, a white man killing after a prayer meeting, nine African-American people in that church. And he said after, by testimony, that his purpose to do this was to incite a race riot. Now, in his first appearance after, many people from the church came to see this, this shooter's testimony and, you know, as he was speaking before the court. And I cannot imagine what the family members of those who were killed must have been feeling. But they were given an opportunity to speak to this person who wronged them. And they spoke words of mercy and forgiveness. Here is what one person said to this man. He says, you took, this is the daughter of one of the people who was killed. You two took something really precious from me. I will never talk to my mother again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. But God forgives you. I forgive you. See, this is what it looks like when love overcomes evil. This is the way of the kingdom of Christ. Would you please join with me in prayer?
Father, uh, when we are honest with ourselves and when we actually think of what Jesus is calling us to, we do feel overwhelmed because we know our own hearts. We feel incapable of sustaining a love for others, a mercy for others when they so wrong us. We know in our hearts the desire to retaliate. And so we ask again for your strength. As we are your children, we pray that your spirit would give us a love that is foreign to us, would give us a love that Jesus has, the same love that Jesus has shown to us even though we have wronged him. Would you please fill us with so that we might love others and look more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.